Hey everybody, what's up and welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I'm your host, Robert Scavone Jr. On this episode, we'll catch up on some criminal opinions from June. The civil opinions from June are covered in a separate episode. Next week, I will be joined by First Amendment litigator David Karp to review Carson v. Mankin and Kennedy v. Bremington School District, two important opinions recently issued by the Super Supremes. Before we get to the opinions, let me give you the disclaimers. Number one, I am not your lawyer. Number two, if you have a legal issue, please call a lawyer. Number three, the following podcast is not legal advice. And number four, this is not an advertisement for legal services. I am not here for your business. All right, let's get to the criminal opinions from June. All right, first up, we have State v. Burns, which was issued by the Florida Supreme Court on June 2nd. But first, some brief background. Criminal defendants have a right to be heard prior to sentencing. This is called allocution, and the defendant's statements are made under oath. Sometimes a defendant will show remorse or take responsibility, and judges may take the defendant's statements into account when determining the appropriate sentence. But what happens when a defendant denies committing the crime or does not show remorse? Can a judge take that into account at sentencing? Some argue that allowing a judge to do so violates the defendant's due process rights and right against self-incrimination. This precise issue was before the Florida Supreme Court last year in Davis v. Florida. In that case, the court held that when a defendant voluntarily chooses to allocate at a sentencing hearing in a non-capital case, the sentencing court is permitted to consider the defendant's freely offered statements, including those indicating a failure to accept responsibility. The court relied on a Supreme Court case called Grayson. In Grayson, the Super Supremes held that the right guaranteed by law to a defendant is narrowly the right to testify truthfully in accordance with the oath. The court went on to explain that a sentencing judge must evaluate a defendant's testimony on the stand, determine whether that testimony contained willful and material falsehoods, and if so, assess in light of all the other knowledge gained about the defendant the meaning of that conduct with respect to his prospects for rehabilitation and restoration to a useful place in society. In short, a sentencing judge should consider a defendant's truthfulness when he is under oath. Now we turn to State v. Burns. In this case, Burns admitted in a sworn post-Miranda confession that he had raped his wife's teenage niece ten times over the course of about two years. He was about 60 years old at the time of the rapes. DNA evidence also showed that Burns had raped his niece. At trial, he attempted to retract his confession and claimed he was innocent. The jury didn't buy it and found Burns guilty of 10 counts of sexual battery. The judge sentenced him to 30 years per count to run consecutive for a total of 300 years. 
During sentencing, the judge stated that Burns showed no remorse and denied that anything actually took place. Here, the judge was referring to the fact that Burns had confessed to the crimes and lied when he testified that the rapes didn't happen. On appeal, the first DCA vacated the sentence and remanded for resentencing, despite the fact that the court believed that Burns, quote, had blatantly lied at trial, end quote. The DCA also certified a question of great public importance. May a sentencing court rely on a defendant's lack of remorse after the defendant has given a post-Miranda sworn confession to the crime and has obviously lied under oath at trial about his guilt. The Florida Supreme Court accepted jurisdiction but stayed the case until its decision in Davis. Ultimately, the court held as follows. Although the freely offered statements on which the trial court relied in sentencing Burns were made during trial rather than allocution, the court was similarly under no obligation to ignore them and was permitted to consider them in imposing the sentence. The court then remanded the case to the first DCA to reconsider its opinion in light of Davis. Next up is Rody v. McNeil, which was issued by the first DCA on June 29th and involves pretrial detention. Under Florida law, an arrestee must be brought before a judge within 24 hours of arrest so the judge can determine the conditions of pretrial release. This initial hearing is called first appearance. Brody was arrested for relatively minor offenses and brought before a judge at first appearance. The judge noticed potential mental health issues and, on the authority of an administrative order, continued the first appearance so that Rody could undergo a mental health evaluation. The hearing resumed the following day and Rody was released on her own recognizance. Prior to being released, however, she filed a petition for habeas relief claiming her continued detention was unlawful. Not surprisingly, she moved to dismiss the habeas petition as moot after she was released. I say not surprisingly because if I had to bet, I would say that the public defender's office moved to dismiss because it did not want the case to come out the way it actually did. The first DCA did not dismiss the petition. The court noted that this precise issue had been raised on several prior occasions but the court was never able to reach the issue because the mental health screening generally takes no more than a day. In light of this, the court decided to hear the case. The question was whether mental health screening without determining pretrial release conditions at first appearance constitutes an illegal detention. The court held that a defendant has no constitutional right to set pretrial release conditions at first appearance. Therefore, a trial court has discretion to defer ruling on bail and to detain the defendant for a reasonable time, which includes the time to complete a mental health evaluation before determining the conditions of pretrial release. This does not mean that first appearance can be delayed while awaiting for the evaluation. 
a defendant still must be brought before a judge within 24 hours of arrest. If at that hearing a judge determines that a mental health evaluation is necessary, the judge may continue the hearing for a brief time to facilitate the evaluation. Our next opinion is AT versus State, which comes to us from the 4th DCA. This is another habeas opinion, but this one involves a juvenile. You may not know this, but generally a juvenile cannot be detained for more than 21 days unless an adjudicative hearing, a trial, has begun. This means that if a juvenile is arrested, even for a violent felony, he must be released from detention on the 21st day unless the state can bring the case to trial on or before the 21st day. As you can imagine, this is extremely difficult, especially when taking into consideration that juvenile offenders have a right to depose witnesses and, in many violent crimes, forensic testing may be necessary. There are exceptions to the 21-day limit, and this case deals with one of them. In this case, the juvenile offender was arrested on felony charges, including discharging a firearm. Apparently, he was placed on home detention and was arrested again. At some time during the proceedings, he was found incompetent to proceed to trial. This means that until a court finds him competent, he cannot go to trial. The trial court extended his detention beyond 21 days until his competency could be restored. The court relied on a Florida statute that allows for successive 72-hour extensions beyond 21 days, provided that the court finds cause for the extension and holds a hearing at the end of each 72-hour period to reassess the situation. The juvenile who was on home detention argued that it was unlawful for the court to continue him on home detention for successive 72-hour periods while he was incompetent to proceed to trial. He petitioned the 4th DCA for habeas relief. The 4th DCA denied the petition. In doing so, it noted that the trial court's reliance on the 72-hour provision was proper in light of the fact that the juvenile's incompetency effectively continued the proceedings, and the trial court found that the juvenile was a danger to the community. This was sufficient cause for extending the juvenile's detention while proceedings were delayed due to his incompetence. Now, our final opinion is a quick one from the Florida Supreme Court. It's Thatch v. State, which was decided on June 30th. In rare circumstances, the state may seek to amend the charging document, the information, mid-trial. This can happen, as it did in this case, where the evidence presented during the state's case-in-chief does not prove all the elements of the crime charged. In this case, the defendant was charged with sexual battery, but none of the witnesses testified to establish the element of penetration. The defendant moved for judgment of acquittal, and the state moved to amend the information from sexual battery to lewd or lascivious molestation. The defendant argued that he would be prejudiced if the state was permitted to amend the information. The trial court disagreed, and the state amended the information, and the defendant was convicted and sentenced to prison. 
The first DCA affirmed the convictions, holding that based on the charges contained in the original and amended informations, the defendant did not show he was prejudiced. The defendant asked the Florida Supreme Court to review the case in light of the fact that the fourth DCA has held that a mid-trial amendment to an information is per se prejudicial. The Florida Supreme Court accepted the case and affirmed the convictions. The court held that mid-trial amendments to informations should be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis to determine, based on the totality of the circumstances, if they prejudice the substantial rights of the defendant. The court flatly rejected the argument that a mid-trial amendment is per se prejudicial and disapproved of the 4th DCA opinions that applied the per se standard. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and tune into future episodes. This podcast was produced by my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions LLC. Until next time, keep one thing in mind. Case law is one word.